There we go. Okay, we're doing good. Man, I'm doing great. I'm excited as we've just seen the Lord just work in the life of Mal and just seen him be baptized here uh, this evening. And if you have never made that profession of faith by, by stepping out and symbolically showing that you are uniting your life with Christ, I would just challenge you to think about that. Uh, to pray through that because it is a step in obedience that we see throughout Scripture. Well, man, I'm so excited uh, to continue our series, The Church Defined, tonight. We're going to be in Acts 1 tonight. If you want to go ahead and flip there, we'll be there here in a second. But tonight we're going to be talking about the mission of the church, the church's mission, why we're here in the first place. Hudson Taylor, who is a 19th century missionary, said this, He said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. And as we look at the idea of the church and its purpose and its mission, I think we have to understand this this quote that Hudson Taylor lays before us right here. So often we live as the Great Commission, this commissioning to go and make disciples, to be witnesses to all people. We look at this commission, this command from Jesus as a suggestion that we may or may not follow. But the truth is, this is the final command that Jesus gives to his followers. Right before he ascends back into heaven, he says, go therefore and make disciples. And the truth is, even as a society, we struggle with this idea. We struggle with this idea of confronting others and their beliefs and their faith. But the truth is, when we understand that, first off, that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. When we recognize this truth and the command that we've been given in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, we recognize that we have a responsibility, that there is something that we must do. And the question is no longer, do we have the gift of evangelism, but are we being obedient to what Christ calls us to do? And that's the question that we're going to be looking at tonight, starting in Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them, after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we, as we dive into your word tonight, Lord, we pray that you would just speak to us. Lord, that you would remove any distractions from the room, and Lord, that you would speak clearly through me your words. 
Lord, that they wouldn't be my own, but they would be rooted in the text of Scripture and through the working of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would challenge us and convict us tonight, but most importantly, we pray that we leave here transformed more into your image. Lord, that we leave here more obedient and willing to do what you've called us to do as a church and to be faithful to all that you've commanded us. Lord, we love you so much. In your son's name I pray. Amen. As we see in these passages, in verses 1 through 6, we kind of see a background. As the author Luke is writing to this man named Theophilus, giving him an account who Jesus was in the beginnings of the church. So the book of Luke is, is the beginnings of, of it's the story of Jesus. And as we enter into chapter 1 of Acts, we see the story of the church. The story of Jesus' continued work after his resurrection. In these first few verses, we see that Jesus was with his disciples for 40 days. He was teaching them. He was preparing them for his ascension. He was trying to help them understand that he was going to a place that was better for them because the Holy Spirit was going to come and indwell them, giving them power to do all that he had commanded them to do. In these first few verses, we see how Jesus is, is preparing to leave how he's giving them a, a final charge and how they ought to live. And like the disciples often do, they are misguided and they ask a question that doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't make sense to us because we've seen the tail end of this story. But to them, the whole time Jesus was on earth, their questioning and their understanding of the Messiah coming was this idea that Jesus would come, this Messiah, the Son of God, would come to earth in order to establish an earthly kingdom, to establish a kingdom in which they were free from Roman oppression, a, a military, a, a social, political kingdom. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, he tries over and over and over again to be like, you're wrong, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm actually here to die. And so when he goes to the cross, their hope of a political kingdom is crushed. But then he rose again. And they think as he's, he's telling them about the kingdom of God that is to come. He's saying, man, this Jesus, he came, he died, he rose again. This is the time. He's going to start his kingdom now. Even though Jesus spent the last three years of his life trying to correct this misunderstanding in their minds, they still ask the question that we see in verse 6. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is a poor question for us. Because for Jesus, his whole ministry was to equip his people, his followers, to continue his work when he was gone. So when they say, at this time, Jesus, is this the time that you are going to do what you came to do? Jesus gives a really good answer, honestly. He just kind of ignores the question for a second. He says, it is not for you to know. Times are seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They, they propose the question, is the kingdom coming now? And Jesus' answer to them is, is basically yes, but not in the way that you expect. Because my kingdom is a spiritual one in which you are to go. But when the Spirit empowers you and enables you and equips you, you are to go and expand the kingdom. 
And that's because the truth is God's plan for his kingdom was to use his church to expand the kingdom of God. His plan was to use his church to expand and to reach the ends of the earth. It was not this political, military-type kingdom in which they would be removed from Roman oppression. It was a spiritual kingdom in which they would be freed from their sins. It was a kingdom in which they would become sons of the living God, in which they were part of the family. They, they, were, part, they were daughters and sons of God. Yes, they were a part of his kingdom, but it's not the kingdom that they were looking for. So Jesus, in the way that Jesus does, he corrects them. He says, no, you don't worry about that. Because their question, they're saying, at this time, what's going to happen? And Jesus says, at this time, you will receive power so that you can be witnesses. So that you can fulfill and expand the kingdom of God. The truth is, and many pastors have said this, this is not original to me, but I couldn't find out who it was original to. The church is God's plan A for reaching the lost and dying world we're in. It's his plan A, and the truth is there's not a plan B. Again, not my words, but it's the truth behind this statement. The fact is the church is the tool in which God wanted to reach the ends of the earth. Because God recognized the people of God were effective at reaching the people of the world. He understood this. And so he's, the question becomes to us not what we should do, but how are we going to be able to do this? Which we see throughout the rest of this text. In verse 8, we see that the disciples, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He looks at them and says, the kingdom will be expanded through the Spirit working in you. He calls them to do something, but in the same time of his calling, he equips and empowers them to do it. He doesn't leave them high and dry. He says, I will be with you always to the ends of the age, as we see in Matthew 28. His promise to his disciples will not just go and do this in good luck, but it was a go and do this, I've prepared you. And not only have I prepared you and equipped you with the power of the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to be with you in this process as well. What comfort it is to know that our God is with us and the mission that he has given us. And the truth is, we cannot do this mission on our own. It'd be like if I had a lamp up here, right? And I turned it on over and over and over again and nothing happened. Because the truth is that lamp wasn't plugged into anything. We ourselves cannot provide light to this world if we are not plugged into the Holy Spirit. If we do not have power from the Holy Spirit, we are not going to reach a lost and dying world. And so Jesus, when he looks at his disciples, he says, don't worry about the how, I provided it for you. You've been given the power in which you need to be the light that you were called to be. It's the Holy Spirit. And the question then becomes, if we are empowered, if we are equipped by the Holy Spirit, what's the process? How do we do this? How do we accomplish this task that Jesus has set 
before us. And he says it very plainly at the end of verse 8. He says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Because not only are disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit, but they are called to be witnesses. They are called to be witnesses in this world. Last September, I think, we'll see. I think it was September. It was September or October. It was 100% October, now that I said those two words. Uh, Last October, me and Rachel went on vacation. We went up to, like, near Birmingham. We were doing, like, camping, trails, hiking, stuff like that. Um, And during this time, we realized something really cool was happening. That about an hour and a half down the road, the Atlanta Braves, my favorite team, was playing in the National League Championship Series. Not only were they playing in the National League Championship Series, and if you don't know what that is, basically that's the, that's the set of games that leads you to the championship, to the World Series. And so we're like, man, we should go check out a game. But when we got to Birmingham, they were up 3-1. We weren't going to be able to make game five. And if you also don't know, you have to win four games to win the series. Uh, so they were right there. And they lost game five, which we were very thankful for, which is a weird feeling as a fan of a team. I was excited that they lost so I could go to game six. And man, I went to game six. Me and Rachel both did. She was there too. I just was excited about it. Uh, Man, this is something that like my whole life has been like leading up to this sports moment, right? Like if it was the epitome of my sports fandom, which isn't that great of a fandom, but like... I have loved the Braves. My parents tell the story all the time. I was like five years old cheering on Chipper Jones, two feet from the TV, watching baseball as a kid. Like, it's what I loved, it's what I adored, and the Braves were always bad. Literally my entire life, they were bad. And then like, every now and then you get a glimpse of hope and then they would just be bad again, right? And so this moment, game six, packed house, The Braves haven't been to a World Series since 99. Like, I was very young at that point in time. I know some of you might not believe that, but I was. And they won. Come on, yeah. And it was the one of the greatest sport experience of my life. The energy in the stadium was amazing. The Braves won a really amazing game in which they just, they they beat the Dodgers, which is a feat in and of itself. Because, like, no one likes the Dodgers. And so, like, man, they won. We went crazy. I lost my voice. I literally told her probably 15 times. Like, this is everything. Everything 10-year-old Chase ever dreamed of. Like, it's every. And then I was like, well, it's also everything 25-year-old Chase ever dreamed of as well. But, man, it was amazing. And I remember getting home from that trip, and we had some Braves fans uh, down in Baton Rouge when we were living there, and like, I told them of everything, right? I told them how hot it was, the temperature of the game, how every out went, what we were saying in between innings, because it was an experience that I wouldn't soon forget. Because I experienced something, and I had to speak of what I experienced. And to be a witness, that's exactly what I was doing. I witnessed one of the greatest sporting history moments of my life, and man, I was not going to shut up about it. I was probably annoying, for just being honest. But it was so amazing. That experience I will never forget. And as Jesus calls his followers to be witnesses, he has the same thing in mind. 
To be a witness is to be someone who has experienced something and speaks about it. I think it's summed up very perfectly in Acts 4.20. In Acts 4.20, we see, we see Peter and John, they were imprisoned for proclaiming the name of Jesus and healing a man. And as they're imprisoned, the guys are like, all right, we can't really do anything to you, but don't go anymore and speak of the name of Jesus. And Peter's response, which like Peter doesn't always respond well, but I think he responds really well here. He says, I cannot help but speak of what I've seen and what I've heard. I cannot help but speak of what I've seen and what I've heard. This is the truth of the gospel. When we truly experience the ever-living, life-changing hope of Jesus Christ, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have experienced because we know that we went from death to life and when we are raised to new life, somebody has to talk about it. Because the truth is, experiencing Jesus, there is nothing better than that in the whole world but I will spend hours of my life talking about a baseball game, but I will be so hesitant to talk about the Savior of my life. And the truth is, I think that story is not only true for me, but it's true for a majority of the room. We're very willing and very passionate to talk about the things of this world. But can we truly say what Peter said? Then I cannot speak of what I have seen and heard. That I cannot speak, I cannot talk about what Jesus has done to me. And the truth is we need to always keep his message of hope on the forefront of our tongue because we recognize what he has done for us. And his coming to, to earth and to live a perfect life and to die a death on a cross in order that we didn't have to die and raise again three days later, that story is amazing. And maybe you're in this room today and you've never experienced that story. Man, I urge you to do that today. Because all it is for us is a belief and a faith in a God that has done the work for us. And praise him for that. Praise him that we do not have to work out of a pit in order to get back to God, but instead that he came and he bridged the gap. Praise him for that. And man, why can't we talk about it? For some of us in the room, it's because we truly haven't experienced the hope and freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. For some of us in the room, it's because we're scared of what others might think. We're afraid of their response. Or we don't know how, is what we say. But the truth of the matter, if we know enough of the gospel for it to save our life, we know enough of the gospel to help save someone else. And Guys, just hear me real quick. I know I'm being really hard. I am really bad at this. But the truth is, this is not something that we can take lightly because this is the mission of the church. And as we've talked about over the last few weeks, we are the church. The mission is not left to a few good men, but it's a left to all men. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, it is the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. 
I don't know if y'all caught that. It said it's the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. There's no exceptions within this text. There's no, this is just for people who are gifted in evangelism. This is for all disciples of Jesus Christ. Because disciples are to be witnesses. A kind of sub-point of that as we read into the text is that we will be witnesses here. As he talks to his disciples, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Where they're at currently, they're out in the Mount of Olives. It's in Bethany, technically, but it's right outside the city of Jerusalem. And he, he looks at them and says, you will go and be my disciples where you are at. And the truth behind this, we, won't, we probably don't think too much about this, but Jerusalem was the exact place in which Jesus was persecuted and killed on the cross. Jerusalem, honestly, was probably one of the more difficult places to go into because they knew about Jesus. They knew that he had been crucified. They knew how the Jews hated him and were trying to continue to to kill him over and over again. But Jesus looks at them and says, you go and be witnesses there. In the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the trial, where you are is where you need to be witnesses. This is exactly where they were. And the truth is, we have the same principle today. I think oftentimes the hardest place to share the gospel is in your everyday life. The reason I think that is because there's so much persecution that can happen, persecution, rejection that can happen in your everyday life. There's so many people that you'll see again, right? It's easy to go across the world and tell people about Jesus because you'll never see them again. But when Jesus looks at his followers, he says the first place that you need to go is right here where you are. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, we as followers of Christ are to to be witnesses where we are, in our classrooms, on our communities, in our campus. We are to be witnesses in in our apartments, in our houses. We are to be witnesses in which we are proclaiming the good name of Jesus and what he has done for us to our immediate location to the relationships that we've already built, to the people that need Jesus here. Because the truth is, if we are too scared to tell about Jesus here, we're probably not going to tell him about it there or when we're down the road. They give an example uh, for a missionary. You have to go through a lot of, of interviews and just a bunch of stuff, honestly. A lot of paperwork, a lot of interviews. And in one of the final interviews they do, and honestly, one of the things that disqualifies the most people that want to be missionaries is when they go into this interview, the interviewee, interviewer, sorry, he looks at them and he says, in the last year, have you led someone to Jesus Christ? This is the number one disqualifier for people who want to be missionaries. Because the truth is, it's hard to share the gospel here. But if we won't share the gospel here, what makes us think we'll share it anywhere else? We have to be faithful where we are. 
We have to be faithful in our daily conversations with people because we recognize that we are not going to change the world for the sake of the gospel if we can't change our neighbor for the sake of the gospel. The second thing we see in this text is that we will be witnesses near. He goes on to say, he says, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, but you'll also be witnesses in Judea and Samaria. This area, if, if you don't know Israel very well, which is understandable, there's yet Jerusalem kind of in the middle of this country, and then you have Judea, which is kind of like the parish, um, if you want to think in Louisiana terms. So we have, we have Ruston, and then we have Lincoln Parish. It's probably, man, it's probably similar in size to that, honestly, maybe a little bigger. And so he looks at them and says, all right, so you have the same people, same culture that are in Jerusalem. Go and reach those people too. Go spread out your scope a little bit. And honestly, I think one of the hardest things they get to in this verse is when he says, go and be witnesses in Samaria. Because the truth is about Samaria and Jews, they hated each other. They, they were culturally different. They were racially different. They, they honestly just butted heads at every moment in their lives. Jews would literally walk around this Samaria, which is center in this state, in this area, in order to avoid these people. They, they disagreed about religion. They disagreed about most things. And they hated each other. But Jesus looks at them and he says, be witnesses there too. It's the same general area as Judea, just a little farther north. But for them, this is a hard pill to swallow. Because they recognize they don't only need to be witnesses to people that look like them and think like them and were raised like them. But they have to be witnesses to people that they don't like, that are culturally different from them, whose families have hated each other for centuries. So not only are we to be witnesses to the people that look just like us, but we are to be witnesses to people that we disagree with, that we struggle to get along with, because the truth of the gospel is it unites everybody, not just the people that we like. Because the truth of, of Christianity and Christian community is that Christ is at the center, and he not only changes our lives, but he changes lives of everyone that comes to know him. And he unites us all in that purpose. The third thing we see in this text is that we will be witnesses far. You will be witnesses far. So he goes from Jerusalem, the city, to Judea, their parish, to Samaria, their hated parish. And then he says, everywhere. He, he, he leaves it open for them to understand that their mission does not have an end when they reach their community. Their mission does not have an end when they have 200 people in a college ministry gathering. No, their mission is to go to the ends of the earth in order that people will have the truth and the message and the hope of the gospel. They are to be witnesses far. We as individuals need to recognize that our mission is not over just because we had that one conversation that one time. We need to recognize that our mission isn't over when we face rejection of any kind. But the bounds and extent of our mission is endless. 
It's a continual process in which we are to proclaim his name forever because his name is worthy to proclaim. As Christians, we need to recognize that following the Great Commission is not something that we can choose or not choose to do. But it's something that we are either obedient in or we're disobedient in. Millard Erickson, who I quoted last week, as a, he's a systematic theologian, he says this. He says, therefore, if the church is to be faithful to its Lord and bring joy to his heart, it must be engaged in bringing the gospel to all people. If we as a church are to be faithful to the Lord and bring, and bring joy to his heart, we must be faithful with the message that has been given to us. And the truth behind that is we do not have to be perfect in that message. We don't have to have all the perfect words. We can stumble on things. We can forget things. Because as followers of Christ, we are called to be obedient, not, not disobedient, not perfect. We are called to be faithful. That's what God looks upon us and judges us by. It's not by our perfection, but by our faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians, towards the beginning, Paul, who's an apostle that we all know his name, Right, he, he led a lot of church, he wrote a lot of good works. And he writes to this church in Corinth and he says, I came to you not with eloquent words or eloquent speech, but with the message of Christ crucified. That's it. We don't have to be perfect, we don't have to be eloquent, we don't have to be the next Billy Graham. We have to be faithful stewards of the message of the gospel that was given over to us. We're called to preach Christ and Christ crucified. That's it. We don't have to know all the fancy words or know all the, the, the seminary terminology. All we need to know is Christ and Christ crucified because that is where our hope lies. It's, it's in the work that he has done, not in the work that we can do as individuals. And this message goes to the ends of the earth, and we are to be faithful. And the truth is, one of the coolest things about the collegiate campus is that it brings the nations to us. All people of all different backgrounds, of all different religions, they all come together on the college campus that is half a mile down the road. And the truth is, if we want to be on mission for Christ, if we want to even go and be missionaries, why not start here? Where our campus is a mission field that is, that is worthy of reaching, that is ripe for the harvest. But the truth is we want to separate, and this is something that I did when I was in college, we want to separate our, our church and our following Jesus with our school life. We want to do ministry on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night or in a small group, but we don't want to do the work of the ministry in our classrooms or in our workplaces. If we are to reach the ends of the earth, we need to start here where the ends of the earth have come, where the nations have come to us. And the last thing that we see in this text tonight is that we will be witnesses now. 
Verse nine says this, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I think this is a really important passage for us in a Christian culture that we find ourselves in. Because as, as these disciples, they see Jesus ascend into heaven on a cloud and like, I can't imagine the sight. I know for a fact I'd be there standing there looking at the sky and being like, what, what now, right? Like that was insane, right? Jesus literally just, he just went. He was gone, right? But these two men in robes who we assume are angels, but we don't really know, they look at these Galileans and they say to them, what are you looking at? Weren't you just given a mission? Weren't you just given something to do? Go, do that. At this time, go and do that. We recognize so often that our tendency is to huddle up and to talk about theology and, and to wrestle with the deepness of scripture, which there's deepness there and doctrine's important. But the truth is, if our doctrine doesn't encourage us to go, our doctrine is not what it should be. If our doctrine does not say go and make disciples, be witnesses to the ends of the earth, our doctrine is wrong. And if we stand so much time twiddling our thumbs, talking about the truths of scripture without living them out, we have missed the purpose of the Christian life. Because following Christ is not a theoretical pursuit, but it's an active pursuit. One in which we are to be faithfully obedient to what he has called us to. One in which we are to, to go and do the things that he called us to do. We are to be witnesses now. Because the truth is, guys, if we aren't witnesses now, what makes us think that we're going to be witnesses later on in our life? I think one of the truest things that a minister ever told me is that the habits that you are forming now is going to be the person you are in five years. The, the people you're around, the, the choices you make, the things that you do now are the habits and, and, and the things that are setting you up to be someone five years from now. But so often, our, our response to a message like this is, yes, when I figure it all out. Our response to a message like this is, yes, when I know all the right words. Or when it gets easier, less busy. Or whenever I find the time. Guys, but the truth is, if we are not witnesses now, what makes us think we are ever going to be witnesses? If we are not making disciples now, why would we think we would ever make disciples later on in our life? If we are not good people now, what makes us think we'll ever turn into people? And the truth is, we have to make a decision. We have to overcome with the power of the Holy Spirit the things that are holding us back to being faithful to the gospel. Because the truth is, our world and the enemy wants us to do anything but share the good news of Jesus. So every excuse, every opportunity, everything that we can convince ourselves of is going to come up. 
Every difficulty, every hard point of our life, it's going to happen right before the moment when we share the gospel. But the truth is there is nothing greater than witnessing about the good news in Jesus Christ. It's worth the pain, it's worth the distraction, it's worth the humiliation if it comes. Because if someone gives their life to Christ, we will celebrate with them for eternity. Because that's the message of the gospel. It's not a temporary hope, but an eternal one. Up on the screen, I'm just, I have seven things. And basically these things are just very practical applications of the message that we've just heard tonight. Of things which we can do in order to live on mission and be witnesses now. The first of these things is pray for the loss on your campus and city. To pray for the lost, not only on campus and city as a general statement, but pray for your lost friends by name. Write their name down. Pray for them daily in order that opportunities might present themselves, which you can present the message of the gospel. The second thing is that it's a new set of eyes in which we view our campus not as something in which we come to be educated, but a mission field in which Christ should be glorified. The third is to ask other people about their stories. And if they have a relationship with Jesus or what faith they come from or, or what they think about God. And guys, honestly, one of the best weeks of the year to do that is the week that we are currently in. As we have 10 days to Easter and everyone celebrates Easter, we can just simply ask the question, what does Easter mean to you? Can I tell you what it means to me? It's an easy access to the gospel in which the whole nation shuts down for a Friday in which we celebrate the death of a man. Let's tell them what that means. Let's be faithful with that message because that good Friday was only good because we know what it meant for us. We know that it covered our sins in which we had hope once more. But it doesn't end on Friday. Here comes Sunday when, when Jesus comes back to life and resurrects and has victory over sin and death. And we can celebrate that as well because we know that means he has won. The fourth thing is, seems to be obvious, but I think it's good to know. To share the gospel and to make disciples here and now. The fifth one is to love the nations that have come to your campus. If we are to reach the end of the world and the end of the world comes here, why would we not love those people and share the message of hope that we have? Six, pray for missionaries to the nations. Pray for the people that are faithful to go. And seven, and lastly, be willing to go. If we are to reach the nations, that means we need to be willing to go and reach the nations. Because if we've learned anything over the last five weeks is that we are the church. The church is built up of individuals in which better complement one another. And the truth is I could go around each person in this room and we all have different spheres of influence. We all interact with different people on a daily basis. And sometimes the only people that can reach that person in your friend group is you. We need to recognize that we have a mission and that we have a command to be obedient. Because the mission of the whole church is to proclaim the name of Jesus to all people. And we are that church. 
We are those people that we are to proclaim. We as individuals are to fulfill the mission that Christ has set before his church through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the proclamation of, the, of what we have seen and what we have heard. What we have experienced in our new life in Jesus, that's all we have to talk about. Because we recognize that if it is, is powerful enough to change us, it's powerful enough to save someone else. We must begin here. And we must begin now. And this all brings us back to the quote I opened up with. The Great Commission is not an, a, an option in which we may or may not follow. But it's a command in which we are choosing to be obedient or disobedient. Let us walk in obedience today. Let us walk in obedience for what Christ calls us to do for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the message of the gospel. And Lord, that we have hope in the gospel. Lord, that your name is worthy to be praised. Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone in this room who is struggling with this message, who has never heard the truth of the gospel and that we can have new life in Jesus Christ, that we can have new life through faith in him because Lord, you have done the work. All we must do is place our belief and faith in you. I pray that that person's in the room, Lord, that they would make that decision tonight because of the hope of the gospel has no end and it speaks to every single person. Lord, and for the Christian in the room, I pray that you will be with them right now because Lord, the tendency is to leave this room and forget the message that you've called them to do. But Lord, as we enter into this time of response, I pray that you would convict us of our disobedience. I pray that you would challenge us and give us opportunities in which we can share the hope and the message of the gospel. Because Lord, we know that when we have experienced it, there is nothing more important to talk about. Lord, I pray that you would be with us in this time, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, and Lord, that we would respond in obedience to what you're calling us to. It's your son's name I pray, amen. Over the next couple of minutes, um, if this is your first time here, we have a time of response. They're gonna play some music. Um, it's just gonna be without words for the next couple of minutes. And I just challenge you uh, to, to answer these three questions, to truly have a conversation between you and God in which you were responding to the words that were just spoken. There's nothing fancy or, or amazing about these questions, but they are just giving an opportunity to respond to the message of what you have just heard. The first question tonight is, are you faithfully being a witness for Christ? The second question is, who can you pray for in this moment, in this time that needs to hear the hope of the gospel? And lastly, how can you better follow Christ in obedience? How can you better follow the commands in which he has given you? We're gonna pray through these questions over the next couple of minutes. I'm gonna be down front. If you need to talk to someone or pray with someone, or if you made the decision to follow Christ, I would love to speak to you about that at this time. And if not, you can catch me after the service and I'll be around. Let's pray.